Right, Mark, well, I wish you well with that passage. It's a challenging one, but there you go. Let's pray for you and for ourselves. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. We thank you that it tells us the good news as well as the bad news about humanity and our situation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came as the saviour of the world. And Lord Jesus, in your name, we pray to you as the Lord of the church, that as Mark preaches, you would anoint him, that you would build up the body of Christ in this place, that our lives will be transformed to be more and more like you. Bless Mark now, we pray. Give him a relaxed feeling of being amongst friends and help him truly to deliver your word with power and grace for Jesus' sake. Good evening. It, it's really good to be here and uh, such, such a privilege to be able to come and speak uh, to you all. I haven't got much time for pleasantries because much I've tried to trim down this, this message for tonight. I've got a lot of ground to cover together in Genesis 3. So if you open your Bibles there, let, let me first just introduce uh, where this uh, passage falls in, in the great storyline of the Bible because this is quite a momentous chapter that fits in quite beautifully with what God is saying overall in his words. I don't know if you've ever been aware of the way in which uh, scripture is, is structured. Um, there's a lovely um, uh, narrative that is going on throughout scripture that's important for us to see, to understand where different parts fall. So for example, that the first three images, first three chapters that we're given in Genesis are chapter one, which speaks of creation, right? So Genesis chapter two, speaks of marriage as Adam and Eve come together for this reason a man will leave his father and mother etc etc and then chapter 3 we have Satan as he enters into the Garden of Eden so we have creation marriage and Satan that is the way scripture starts now how does scripture finish it finishes with three images Revelation chapter 20 we have the doom of Satan Revelation chapter 21, we have what is called the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where God and his people are united uh, together in, in marriage, as it's described. And then Revelation chapter 22, which is a new and better creation. So we have that image reversed, creation, marriage, Satan, to Revelation chapter 20 to 22. We have Satan, marriage, new creation. It's a beautiful way in which God has bookended his, his storyline to show that we have the beginning and the end. And God does this throughout Scripture. So, for example, after we have those bookends, how does the, the Old Testament start? Well, it starts with four biographies of the birth, the life, and the death of Moses. And um, there's a very specific way in which that starts. So, at the beginning of uh, the life of Moses, He's born into a situation where uh, quite an evil king is killing the baby boys in Egypt and Moses out of that emerges to lead his people through the Red Sea and where they, they struggle and attempted in the wilderness for 40 years. How does the New Testament start? The New Testament starts also with four biographies of the birth, the life and the death of a better Moses, a, a, a better saviour. And how do those biographies start? How does the book of Matthew start? It starts with an evil king who's killing baby boys and 
Jesus has to be taken down to Egypt where Moses was. And then from Egypt he immediately goes and, and Matthew skips the childhood and goes to him going through another sea, this time a sea of baptism, and into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days and for 40 nights to be tempted um, and, to, and to succeed where the people failed in the Old Testament. You see, there's a pattern here. There's something that God wants to say through the ordering of Scripture. What we find tonight is, is something that is very important in that great storyline. We're going to come to Genesis 3, so let me just, just pray as we do that. Lord, we just ask that through these words you would speak to us powerfully and you would uh, you'd be here with us knowing that your presence with us has the power to transform our lives, to challenge us and to impact us in ways that we do not expect. So Lord, we pray that you would be with us here tonight in your name. Amen. I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, Stephen Langton. Um, you may not know his name, but I guarantee you'll know his work. In fact, I can almost guarantee that you've quoted his work hundreds, if not, not thousands of times in your life. And I guess for many of you, you will have quoted this man's work today. Uh, he was um, an Archbishop of Canterbury at one point in his life, about 800 years ago. Uh, he was involved in the drafting of the Magna Carta, but his lasting legacy is that uh, he was one of the men who was credited with introducing chapter divisions in the Bible. So every time you've spoken of John 3.16 or Genesis 1 or Acts 2, you are quoting the work of Stephen Langton. Those are the numbers that he introduced. And those chapters can be really helpful, can't they? go through scripture, it's helpful to, to break it down to chapters so that we can uh, be aided in our memorization or be um, aided in finding our place or breaking down the great narrative of scripture into its various storylines and events. But sometimes chapter divisions can be very unhelpful as well. Sometimes chapters divide up stories that aren't meant to be divided up. And the gap between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 is perhaps a good example of that. How does chapter 2 end? If you just look back on the previous page in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 ends with the statement that Adam and Eve are naked. That's, that's a strange way to end a chapter, isn't it? Then how does Genesis chapter 3 begin? It says, the serpent is crafty, the snake was crafty. A strange ending to a chapter and a strange beginning. Those statements uh, are meant to be read together, and here's why. Most of you will know that the Old Testament was written not in English, but in, in a form of Hebrew, Hebrew language. And the words for naked, Adam and Eve were naked, and the word for crafty, the serpent was crafty, those two words are almost identical. In fact, the only difference between the two of them in Hebrew is a vowel. Uh, if you know anything about the Old Testament Hebrew, they didn't write the vowels into the text, and so to a Jewish reader, those words would have looked identical. Adam and Eve are naked, the serpent is crafty. Those words would have looked the same, and only the context would have separated them. It's meant to be a, a play on words, if you like. A play on words that doesn't come across in, uh, in our English translations, although I tried to think of some inventive way that you could bring across that these two things are meant to come together. Perhaps you could say... Um, Adam and Eve were nude and the serpent was shrewd and perhaps that would bring together something of the fact that these two statements are meant to be read side by side. But if you didn't know that, it would just seem like a very strange thing to say that Adam and Eve are naked and the serpent is 
crafty. But the Bible's trying to make a point here, I say trying, the Bible is making a point here, that we might look at Adam and Eve and we could think, well, what could possibly go wrong here? They've been created perfectly, they're in a perfect paradise home, they have a perfect marriage, they're made in God's image, they have his divine blessing upon their lives. And so we get to the end of Genesis chapter 2 and we think, well, they're beyond disaster. They're beyond failure. Mankind is strong, mankind is mighty and incorruptible and self-sufficient. But the text wants us, wants us to understand a different picture. It's Adam and Eve are naked. In one sense, meaning they are pure, they are innocent. But in another sense, it gives us this picture that they are vulnerable, that they are exposed in some sense to the enemy's plans. Adam and Eve are naked, but the serpent is crafty, he's cunning by contrast. He is capable of exposing their vulnerability. It's a reminder to us as Christians, really, that we must not rest in our own strength to fight and to try and win the battles. Without God, we are, we are naked, we, we, we are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy, and there is a crafty and cunning enemy who has power and is at work in our world. And so Genesis 3 might look from the onset like a, like a paradise, but actually the Bible's painting it as a battleground. This chapter sets the stage really for every human situation from Genesis chapter 3 onwards that we live in a battleground. That even if you live in the most uh, wonderful paradise of lands, even if you live on, a, what's the modern equivalent of paradise on earth? Aldridge, right? That's, that's paradise on earth today, isn't it? And, and you have everything you could ever want in life, uh, everything your heart desires, and you enjoy all the comforts and, and luxuries afforded to us by Western society. You feel strong and healthy, but there's an enemy. There's an enemy who is a crafty enemy, and the moment we feel self-sufficient, the moment we feel self-reliant, the moment we feel strong enough to fight the battle by ourselves, is the moment we make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. And so Genesis chapter 3 is this battleground. And it importantly gives us an insight into the enemy's battleground, into the enemy's battle plan, I should say. Now, I don't know how many of you are into this kind of thing, but, uh, but last Christmas, the latest Star Wars film came out. And it's not really important whether you've seen it or not, but just to give you a summary of what went on in that, uh, that film. Essentially, the enemy have built um, an ultimate weapon. They've built a weapon that can destroy entire worlds. And so um, the, the remnant of good guys decide our only hope is that we can get hold of the enemy's battle plans and try and expose them for some kind of weakness to equip ourselves against the enemy's attacks. Now, now that's what we have in Genesis chapter 3 here. This is a glimpse into the way the enemy works. God is showing us this is the enemy's battle plan. These are the strategies he chooses to use. So I, I, would, I would say that this chapter really could save your life as a Christian. Knowing this chapter means knowing the strategies and plans and weapons the enemy uses. So this could be the difference really for you as a Christian going into battle, going into spiritual battle equipped and armed or going into battle naked. And so we have a war. The war begins here in Genesis chapter 3. It begins with a war of words. Andrew read to us uh, earlier, it begins with uh, Satan saying through this snake, did God really say? Words are a powerful thing, aren't they? 
Say sticks and stones may break our bones with words we never heard some, yet I guess when we look back over life, some of the most hurtful times, some of the most hurtful experiences we've had have been through words. There's a famous Arabic story which um, doesn't come across completely well in, in English, but you kind of get the gist of it, of, of a judge who condemns a prisoner to death. And uh, this prisoner, is, uh, his life hangs on the words of the chosen. In fact, his life hangs on the emphasis of words. And so this judge condemns this, uh, this man, and he's taken to his place of execution, and he's taken by cart over to the place where he's going to be hung. Uh, the judge comes across new information, he comes across new evidence, and he realises this man he's condemned as guilty is actually innocent. And so he quickly scribbles a note to be sent on ahead to the carriage to make sure that this man is not executed. And he writes this note, and he means, in his haste, he means to write, release, dot, 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 is impossible to be killed. But instead, in his rush, he, he writes, release is impossible, dot, 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 to be killed. You see, words are powerful things, aren't they? And a slight change of words affects a situation completely. So, so you notice the enemy's tactic here. Here's, here we see a glimpse into his game plan. He says, did God really say? Now on the face of it, it would seem as if Satan is challenging God's authority. If we take a closer look, we realise that's actually not the case. Satan says, did God really say? And then he goes on to say something that God didn't really say. What does Satan claim God is saying? Did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Did God say that? No, God didn't say that, did he? Satan isn't challenging God's words. He's changing God's words. Back in chapter 2 and verse 16, God actually said, you're, you're free to eat of any of the trees of the garden except for this one. God gives them freedom, but Satan's plan, his tactics, are to paint God's purposes as being like slavery to paint God's way as being cruel. That, that's always true, particularly true in our culture, isn't it? That as we think of the kind of images that people portray of Christianity, they try and paint God as this cruel God who wants to enslave us to these rules and traditions and, and, and rituals, rather than seeing that God's way is the way of freedom. This is always God's, this is always Satan's plan in opposition to God. You think about your own life, you think about the own, your own temptations that you face as a Christian. Satan doesn't simply come along to you and say, well, well, just disobey God, just go against what he's saying. Rather God, rather Satan, um, does something much more subtle. He paints God as being cruel and oppressive. That little whisper in your ear saying, well, look, I, I know the Bible says turn the other cheek, but, but God doesn't understand, does he? God doesn't understand the things that you go through. God doesn't understand the busyness of life. And, and, and after all, that, that, person, that person needs to be taught a lesson. And, and doesn't God love justice? Uh, and, and you don't want to look weak and being taken advantage of. Rather, you should, uh, you should show justice and teach this person a lesson. Or Satan comes and whispers saying, well, uh, I know the Bible tells you to share your faith. But look, look, you've got all these pressures of modern life and, and Jesus never had any of those pressures and neither did the disciples. We live in a different world today. We can't be expected to live up to these standards. God is, is unrealistic. So here we have a glimpse of Satan's game plan. Eve does correct Satan at this point. She says, well, no, God didn't say that. 
God said that we can eat from any of the trees except for this one tree. And if we eat of this tree, we will surely die. But, but notice what Eve does at this point. In correcting the changes that Satan is making in twisting God's word, she makes her own changes. Look, look at verse 3. Look, look what it says. She says, we mustn't eat of that tree. In fact, we shall not even touch it. God said that? God said you shall not touch the tree? What is Eve trying to do? She is trying to fight the enemy's words with her own words. She thinks that she can fight Satan's manipulation and twisting of scripture by changing God's words by herself. That's, that's what religion is really. That's what human religion is. Adding our own words, adding our own traditions, adding our own rituals to what God has said as if what God has said is not enough. So instead of fighting with the word of God and the sword of the Spirit, as Jesus does when he resists the temptations, she decides to fight with her own words and her own sword. And as a result, she fails. And her and Adam fall into sin. Death enters the world, and then God comes looking for answers. Adam starts by blaming Eve, doesn't he? He says it, it's the woman's fault. You think, what, what an awful thing to say. What a terrible thing to say. It, it's my wife's fault. My, my new bride, who I've just begun, it's her fault. She's the one to blame. But worse than that, he blames God. In verse 12, he says, It's the woman that you put here. The woman that you gave me is to blame. So I was doing okay till you gave me a woman, and now she has led me into sin. So Adam blames Eve, he blames God, and then Eve blames the serpent. And in verse 14, in response to all this, we have the first sermon, the first message that's ever preached. First preacher is, is God, and the audience of the first sermon is who? The audience is, is Satan. The congregation of the first sermon ever preached is Satan. There's three points to this sermon. The first one is directed at Satan, the second is directed at Eve, and the third is directed to Adam. He says, so to the serpent, he said, to, to Eve, he said, to Adam, he said. So first God speaks to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Notice what God's doing there. God starts the war. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God starts the war, and that's, re that's really important. It is God who issues the call to war, not Satan. In, in, in September 1939, Nazi Germany committed an an act of war when they invaded Poland, as you'll know from school or from faulty towers, I guess. And uh, you'll know that later in, in September, on September the 3rd, the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain took to the radio airwaves and declared Britain is at war. He declared war as a result of the act of treason. And that's what God does here. The enemy commits his act of treason, the enemy invades, and so God takes to his pulpit and he starts the war. God issues the battle cry. God is in control here. Now, there are many good reasons why you might be at church tonight, many blessings of being amongst God's people, whether it's singing God's praises together as we've done, whether it's learning together or spending time together, drinking coffee together, praying for each other, serving each other in love, but that one of the chief reasons that we are together as God's people each week is because there is a war on. We're here to receive our marching orders. We're, we're here to receive the war strategy that God has given in his word to, to study that battle plan, to study the blueprints for battle. 
We're here to sing our battle songs, our songs of victory and triumph and to receive our armour, to have our armour checked, to have our armour cleaned, to have our swords sharpened. There is a war on and we're here together to do battle against the forces of evil. You know, sometimes it seems that particularly in, in the West, it seems in our own context, that we have to a certain extent domesticated the Christian faith. We have to a certain extent presented Christianity as being a rather tame thing of a, of a nice God who helps you through the day or a nice God who helps me get what I want in life, you know, the kind of the American dream sort of thing, like a genie in your pocket that you can call on when things aren't going well. And church is this kind of this, this nice club where we get together and cheer each other up and have a bit of a knees up. But there's a war on. And God has called us to serve in his army, to carry his battle cry and to wave his banner. So as Christians, we need to make sure that we are wide awake to the battle that is going on. There are people who are dying. There are people who are broken. There are people who are lost in this world. And God's name is being dragged through the gutter. The gospel is being spat upon. And so God issues his battle cry saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God draws battle lines, then we're told. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. So the war that's going on in this world is between the offspring of Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman, and the offspring of the serpent. There are these two armies in life. Now, of course, that doesn't literally mean that um, Eve's literal offspring, which would be Cain and Abel and Seth, are actually going to have a physical battle against the, the immediate offspring of the snake. It's not going to be a battle between Cain and Abel and a few uh, snake babies, whatever the name of snake babies are. It's not that kind of thing, is it? We know from the New Testament who these offspring are. The offspring of Eve are, or is Jesus, primarily. The offspring of Eve, the seed of the woman, is Jesus. And, of course, the people who follow Jesus by faith are his offspring. And Satan's offspring, as we know from Revelation that the serpent, the ancient serpent, is Satan or the devil. Satan's offspring are those who choose to oppose Christ and his gospel. And therefore, those who trust in Christ have become the children of God. John says, we're given the right to be called the children of God, the offspring of Christ. While, of course, Jesus spoke of the religious people plotting against him in his day, saying, you are like your father, the devil. You are the offspring of Satan. These two armies that are at war with each other. And in this war, God says that those who fight in Satan's army, according to Genesis chapter 3, are going to bruise or strike, depending on your translation there, are going to bruise the children of Eve. Primarily Jesus, of course. But while he will be bruised, the offspring will crush Satan's head. Ultimately true of Jesus on the cross. There he is bruised, his heel is bruised. Now, crucifixion looks more than just a bruise. It looks like something much more serious than a bruise. But the picture of a bruise here in Genesis chapter 3 is that he will be hurt, but not ultimately defeated. He is bruised, but he's not overcome. And he returns, therefore, from the bruise to crush the head of the serpents. You see, the picture in Genesis chapter 3 is bigger than that. It's bigger than just Satan and Christ at battle with each other. 
This is a war that continues through all ages. As we, the offspring of Christ through faith, are bruised, are beaten, are often beleaguered in life, but we are not crushed. Ultimately, we are not defeated. As Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, um, says, we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. He says, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down but not destroyed. We are, as Christians, constantly bruised in the battle that we face and fight, but with the knowledge that Christ has crushed the head of the serpent, and therefore there is no ultimate defeat that we face. See, God has called us to be warriors in this battle. God's equipped us through faith with the armour of God that he's given us, issued us with battle plans, issued us with, with, with a mission to serve in with assignments on his battlefield and has guaranteed us the victory as we fight for him. But he promises that there will be bruisings along the way and each one of us as Christians will know a measure of that bruising. But let me just, I just want to say something specifically here at this point. As, uh, as God moves on to address Adam, I just want to address the men here some moment because I think this has something very powerful to say to the men in particular here. As, as, as men, we were made to be uh, warriors. Now, not the kind of warriors that the world honours or respects, but God's kind of warrior. Now, our culture portrays men as being lazy. And to a certain extent, I think that they're right. And I think that we know as men here that there are few more dangerous things in life than a lazy man. This incident in Genesis 3 occurs because Adam was lazy. Where is Adam while Eve is being tempted? Wasn't he meant to look after her? Wasn't he meant to protect her and fight for her? Where is Adam? Verse 6 tells us, and it is one of the most frightening verses in the Bible, I think. It says that Eve gave Adam the fruit because he was with her. Adam was there all along. He's watching his wife being tempted and he does nothing. He could have slayed the serpent at the first opportunity, couldn't he? He could have stepped in when he saw that things were going south. He could have stood his ground against the temptations of Satan. But instead he chooses just to be silent and allow his wife to fall into temptation. One tactic that the enemy has is to create lazy men. To turn warriors into wimps. And I'm not talking about physical things, I'm talking about spiritual warriors, spiritual wimps. When the Bible gives images of men, it chooses to use pictures of soldiers and athletes and farmers and, and shepherds, hard workers, men of courage. That's what we're made to be as, as Christian men, workers and warriors and servants and protectors. But instead, it seems that in our society by and large, instead of being the warriors that God calls us to be, so often... Men in our society are overgrown boys pretending to be warriors on Xboxes rather than being the warriors that God has called us to be in the spiritual battle that we're meant to fight in, the real battle. So often we're pretending to be warriors while the real war is being fought by and large so often by the women that we've abandoned on the battlefield just as Adam abandons his wife to destruction in Genesis 3. We need to learn as men to stand up and fight in the spiritual battle, to wake up and to put our laziness aside and to stop forcing the women to fight our role in the battle as well as theirs. Eve needed Adam and Adam needed Eve. They were there together in perfect union to fight together. Each had a role to play. Adam failed in his role and because of his failure, Eve fails in her, in her role. 
Adam failed, but we must not as men of our generation. Now, let me just talk to, to everyone here now. So we're, we're in a battle. I can I ask you, how's the battle going as, as Christians? It's difficult, isn't it? Don't you feel like you're losing so often? It's not the case. Don't you feel defeated? Don't you feel weak? Don't you feel like you're never really getting anywhere or taking any ground? We all know that feeling as Christians, but God has given us everything we need in Christ. And of course we know from the cross that sometimes victory in the Christian life looks like defeat because we are those who lay down our lives for others. Because the weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of this world. The weapons that God has equipped us with are radical love and the truth of the gospel and personal holiness and faith and prayer and the word of God to study and to learn. And sometimes as Christians, we may look like a pretty lousy army, right? We may look like a bit of a ragtag bunch of of people. And yet every act of Christ-like love, every act of kindness done in the name of Christ that you show this week strikes a blow to the very heart of the enemy. And even that bedridden, frail, old Christian man or woman whispering a prayer a simple prayer of faith on behalf of God's people shakes the very foundations of hell. And each time we open our mouths as Christians to speak the gospel, as simple as it may seem, as weak and frail as it may seem, as it comes out of our mouths, nevertheless the host of hell falls back and trembles at that sound. And every time we sing songs of praise and worship and we meet together to lift our God high, it strikes fear into the serpent's army. See, here we have a blueprint for battle. It's a blueprint here in Genesis that goes throughout Scripture as this pattern is repeated again and again and again as Satan comes and tempts and people fail, as God blesses but Satan corrupts. It happens again and again and again until one day one man stands in the breach. He is tempted but he does not fail as Adam fails. He doesn't fail as the people of Israel fail in the wilderness. He stands in the wilderness and he succeeds where Adam fails fulfilled perfectly in the man Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus in the Bible is described as the the second Adam or or the last Adam. For Jesus to save us from the curse that is brought in through Adam, he needs to succeed where Adam fails. He too must be tempted by Satan. He too must be tempted but without sin. He too must rescue his fallen bride where Adam remains silent. And unlike Adam, he must take the blame for his bride's sin. You see, here's the irony really in scripture, is that the first Adam is guilty, but he's trying to pass the blame onto his wife as if he was innocent. And yet the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is innocent, and yet accepts the blame in his death, in that death sentence he takes on behalf of his guilty bride, the church, thereby crushing the head of the serpents and rescuing his beloved bride. And rather than say, the woman you gave me caused me to sin, the woman you gave me is to blame, what does Jesus do? He takes his church who are to blame, the church who sin and and fail him so often and succumb to temptation so often. He takes these people who could rightly be blamed and he says to his father, the woman you gave me is perfect. The woman you gave me is beautiful and blameless and forgiven because of my sacrificial death on the cross. And therefore that pattern that we started with at the beginning, as Genesis starts with creation, marriage, Satan, 
is reversed in Jesus. He destroys Satan, thereby bringing about a greater marriage of him and the church, thereby bringing about a greater, newer, perfected creation in Revelation chapter 22, showing that from Genesis to Revelation, this was always God's plan. And we become part of that plan too, you see. We become part of that blueprint. That we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not in the footsteps of Adam. But we show the same characteristics as we go out and fight the battle that Jesus did. So we show our sacrificial love to each other, mirroring and reflecting what Jesus has done for us and undoing through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We undo the fall and bring restoration to the world around us as God enables us and equips us through Christ. I'm going to, uh, to pray for us as we, uh, as we close this uh, the message and uh, invite a time of uh, response. Lord, we, we thank you for a chance to look at your word together. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of, of despair in Genesis 3, that there is this tremendous promise that this battle will go on and this battle will be won by the offspring of the woman. Lord, we thank you that Jesus comes, that perfect offspring, born like uh, one of us, born under the law, born like us in every way, yet without sin, succeeding where we fail and dying where we deserve to die and being raised for us that we may be raised with Christ as his new, glorious, perfected, blameless bride. Lord, we pray that as the people of God, we would fight in the battle you've caused, called us to fight in and Lord we would use the things that you've equipped us with, the armour and the weaponry that you've given to us in your words that we may see strongholds taken down and your kingdom advanced in our community and in our generation. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.